Welcome to the Market Pulse podcast from Equifax, where we break down the latest economic and credit insights to help you navigate today's business landscape. Welcome to our July Market Pulse podcast. Today we'll be updating you on the U.S. economy, then continuing with the topic of expanding access to credit and what that might look like as we recover from the pandemic-driven recession. With our K-shaped economic recovery, we know that while one population will continue to recover nicely, the other population will continue on a divergent path. We'll dig in a bit more to better understand what our industry can do to expand access to credit and what the implications of that would be for consumers in the economy. This is a continuation of our featured topic from our June 24th Market Pulse webinar, and we're eager to offer additional voices and insight for you in this podcast. I'm Catherine Doe, your host for today and a member of the marketing team here at Equifax. I'm pleased to be joined again by David Fieldhouse, Director of Consumer Credit Analytics at Moody's Analytics. Welcome back. And I'm pleased to welcome Emery Schahunger, Senior Vice President of Predictive Analytics, Research, and Product Management at VantageScore. Emory and Vantage Score have some really interesting analysis on conventionally unscorable populations and what opportunities may be available to extend credit to these consumers. This is something that's increasingly important as we continue to assess both paths forward in our economic recovery. And just for a brief overview for any listeners who aren't familiar, Vantage Score was founded in 2006 by three national credit reporting companies, Equifax being one, to provide competition in the market, develop highly accurate credit scoring models, and to reliably score more consumers so that they can gain access to mainstream credit. And of course, we'll get more into that shortly. Okay, David, kick us off with an updated look at the economy and consumer credit and what's going right this summer. Um, From my perspective, it feels like we're back in the swing of things. And um, in many areas, it seems like the demand for normalcy is almost outpacing the ability to keep up. I hear that the airline industry can't keep pace and is canceling flights. And just about every business in my neighborhood um, has a help wanted sign out front. So um, I'm eager for your thoughts and and what you make of this and what does the data tell us uh, for the next couple of weeks and the rest of season. Catherine, I think you've got a great uh, pulse on the marketplace, no, no pun intended there. But, uh, you know, when we look at travel, we're following uh, indivi- uh, the data from the TSA, looking at individuals going through uh, checkpoints. Uh, in the last week of June, we saw about 2 million people go through TSA checkpoints. If we go back a year ago, that would have been about half a million people. Two years ago, it would have been 2.5 million people. So we're, we're getting there. Uh, there's a lot of stories about airlines raising prices. So you can see that uh, they feel like they have the pricing power to um, operate in this market with when there's so much pent up demand. So uh, I, we're definitely seeing travel come back. That's going to be very important for uh, consumer credit, uh, driving some of those bigger uh, purchases at some of that more uh, discretionary spending. If we look at the job market, uh, it's some very positive news there. Uh, there's actually a record number of openings right now. In fact, there's a, a f- effectively an opening for every person who is looking for work at this point. Of course, we can't fill all those jobs. There's natural frictions there, whether they come from di- you know different geographies, different skill sets, uh, informational frictions as well. But you know there, there are jobs that are out there right now. So the economic uh, conditions are moving along very well. Um, they're almost playing out to the script that we 
laid out earlier this year, we expect real GDP growth to be just shy of 7% this year. We haven't really revised it. Um, and we're, we're expecting GDP growth to be 5% next year. Of course, there are a couple risks out there. We're concerned about the Delta variant going forward. Obviously, that's getting a lot of news coverage recently. And uh, if there is a truly a fourth wave, we have to see what the economic impact would be, although it might be muted this time if there's not a lot of COVID mitigation protocols put in place. But there definitely is some nervousness about the Delta variant. Uh, and then we're also closely watching asset prices. We're worried that consumers may begin to overextend themselves when they're buying a house or a car. Both markets are suffering from supply constraints. Uh, there may be some cooling off towards the end of the year. Uh, and especially in auto, we're seeing some signs that demand is beginning to cool off. If we look at used car prices uh, in the last month, they actually didn't go up for the first time in a while. So there's some signs that the auto market is beginning to uh, cool off a little bit as consumers feel a little more comfortable with public transportation again, and um, or maybe have already got the vehicles that they needed or just going to wait till 2022. Mm, and that that's all good insight. And it feels like we're starting to see the path forward to the uh, normal normal and not just the pent up demand normal. So that's that's good to hear. Um, and, and, you know, in, in talking about this and the ability to travel and go out and buy a car, um, it feels like we're, we're talking a lot about um, maybe that that top leg of the K and that path forward. Um, but there's that opposite path as well um, and a whole different population of consumers that are not in that position. So um, I'd love to hear from you a little bit more of what you're seeing on the, the credit side um, for, for that divergent path in the K. Yeah, the population that I like to study when I'm thinking about uh, the other half of the K, uh, the individuals who maybe are not as well positioned right now, it, I usually look at the renter population. That's usually the group that I, I focus in on. Uh, our current estimates are that there are about 5.6 million delinquent renters in the United States. So that's about 13% of all renters. To put that in uh, context, uh, our best estimate uh, although uh, is that about 6% of renters are typically delinquent. Um, in terms of severity of, amongst the delinquent population, we're expecting that they're about three months behind in payments when you put together rent and utility and, and those typical payments that need to be made. Um, things have actually improved. Uh, so, so we were talking earlier this year about a potential uh, rental eviction crisis. Um, things are on the right path to staying away from that true crisis. What we need to do is have that uh, rental assistance uh, from the government actually get distributed. There's been a lot of administrative uh, hurdles as money passes from state to local governments to finally make it to the uh, renters. But um, th there are definitely 5 million renters out there right now that are probably not feeling uh, as optimistic about the economic situations and and we need to be cognizant of this group. Yeah, it, you know, I think that's probably a great segue um, to you, Emery, and um, this is where we can dig in a little bit more to your research. And I would love to hear from your perspective, um, just a little bit of an overview of the unscorable and invisible populations that you've been studying um, and what Vantage Score was seeking to, to better understand with that initiative. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. Um, you're absolutely right um, that there's actually a significant focus on the topic of credit invisibles right now. 
um, lack of a credit score certainly hinders a consumer's ability to access mainstream credit products. And that contributes to financial inequities and a growing wealth gap for historically disadvantaged consumers. As you mentioned at the beginning of, of the podcast, a foundational objective for Vantage Score has always been centered around financial inclusion. And many of our innovations have been aimed at really trying to increase the population of scoreable consumers and to provide a fair and accurate representation of credit risk so that they can have a fair shot uh, at gaining access to mainstream credit products. Now, coming to our research, uh, CFPB had performed an analysis back in 2015, which stated that there were roughly about 45 million consumers who were credit invisible. But we know that not all of these consumers are credit invisible, really. They're invisible only to some of the legacy systems and models that have not been really updated for uh, quite some time. In our research, uh, we, we aim to provide an estimate of the total population of consumers 18 years or older who are scoreable by Vantage Score. And we looked at the 2019 census numbers and we note that there were about 48 million consumers who are not receiving a score through conventional models due to uh, their stringent scoreability criteria. And we can estimate that Vantage Score can get to about 37 million of these consumers, meaning we can actually reach about 96% of uh, adults in the United States and provide a reliable and accurate score for them. Um, in our research we performed recently, our aim was to really better understand these newly scoreable consumers, study what information they have in their credit profiles, understand some of the demographics such as uh, their age distributions, their income distributions, understanding the race and uh, geography um, representation. And we also looked at the association between scorability and some of the, the key socioeconomic indicators um, such as income levels, education, home ownership, and access to financial services in the communities consumers live in. We also looked at how race uh, interacts with all of these different factors. A key goal for that research was to really identify consumer segments that we felt would be most benefiting from a more inclusive uh, credit scoring model. And, you know, we've, we've spoken on previous webinars and podcasts about how this pandemic has disproportionately impacted Black and Hispanic Americans. So um, since you just paused on that topic, I'd love to go back there and, and understand from the research, how do you think that by scoring this new population, we could break the, the self-enforcing cycle of um, some of these Americans not qualifying for those mainstream products? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, we can see that there are certain demographic groups that are disproportionately affected by not having a score through a conventional model. Um, in fact, when you look at African-American and Hispanic populations, we observe that they are particularly underserved by conventional models. Um, our research suggests that about 78% are receiving a conventional score. Uh, we, we see that out of the 37 million consumers, um, that are newly scorable to advantage score models, there, there's about 11 million of them who are either African American and Hispanic. And out of that 11 million, we see that about 3 million consumers 
are near prime level consumers from a credit score perspective, which would actually make them credit worthy uh, borrowers for the right type of product, for the right type of um, underwriting. In terms of this self-reinforcing loop that that we're talking about, our research certainly shows that not having a conventional score causes consumers to be left out of the financial system altogether or um, receive unfavorable terms. We see that they get significantly lower credit amounts, for example, than what their true credit risk profile would suggest. Uh, This negative cycle is something that we need to figure out a way to break away from. Um, Lack of a credit score results in either alternative sources of financing, such as a payday loan, or unfavorable terms such as high cost of borrowing or significantly lower limits. And that reduces the consumer's ability to perform on their obligations and eventually default potentially, which then pushes them further out of the, the, the financial system. A fair and accurate credit score, on the other hand, would allow a consumer to better understand their financial situation, build experience and understanding of how they can manage their credit lives, build the history and experience, and gain access to increasingly more sophisticated products over time. While not all of these consumers will be credit worthy on day one, although we show that a significant percent of them are actually you know, near prime uh, type consumers, at least um, consumers will have a clearer picture of where they stand with respect to their um, uh, credit and how they can improve. Uh, so we believe that that's going to be uh, very important to level the playing field and, and in- improve uh, financial inclusion uh, for consumers. Do you have the economic and consumer credit performance you need? With creditforecast.com, a joint product created by Equifax and Moody's Analytics, You can access data, forecasts, scenarios, analyses, and more from analysts you trust. Learn more in our show notes or visit creditforecast.com today. Yeah, and and that's huge. Um, You mentioned 37 million newly scorable Americans. And when you talk about that on on a large scale, that's a huge number. But when we think more specifically about what that means for communities and particular geographic regions, um, I know you have some great data on that as well. Um, So I'd love to hear, um, while we don't have time to go through all of them, I'm sure there's a handful of major areas where the data is showing that this would provide significant lift um, at more of the community level. Yeah, so this was actually a a very interesting part of our um, research. The Census Bureau provides a treasure chest of data on many socioeconomic uh, indicators at a pretty granular geographic level. In fact, um, they have data on about 2,400 different statistical areas that make up the United States. And, And we looked at that data in conjunction with the data we have on consumers' credit files to really understand how some of these associations uh, occurred. We looked at uh, household income levels, for example. We looked at education, like percent of college graduates um, in, a, in a particular community. We look at the homeowner versus renter ratios. And we also looked at on a day-to-day basis, whether or not they have access to a brick and mortar financial um, service in their communities. And we try to correlate that with scorability through a conventional model 
or through a vantage score model. On top of that, another dimension that was important for us was to really overlay the race and ethnicity information, again from the census data, to see how these elements really interacted with, with race. Our results at the very high level suggest that there is actually a very strong relationship between all of these factors I mentioned and, and, and scorability through conventional models, and that, that African-American and Hispanic populations particularly are disproportionately and negatively impacted by some of these, these associations. The research suggests that there are actually significant opportunities for improved financial inclusion through the use of a, simply a more up-to-date model that can appropriately and accurately and fairly um, bring these these consumers into into the financial fold. Yeah, and it's it's great data. And and from here, I'd love to turn back to you, David, to understand from your perspective, if we have this whole new population, millions of Americans that can now gain access to. Um, mainstream products, what does that do for us? And what does that do for us, particularly at a time when we are trying to bounce back from a recession? It will be very helpful. Uh, Access to credit will make a meaningful difference in people's lives. Consumer credit helps people in the times of emergency, uh, helps them get access to income that they might be expecting to receive in the future. In the short term, I expect these younger credit files or individuals with no trades to really pack the biggest economic punch. Uh, they can get access to credit now. Uh, that will allow them to make uh, purchases. I think if we dig into that population a little bit more, I would imagine that the individuals that are a bit more disconnected from the financial community would get better terms and they would have more money to spend. And then they there will be a certain number of uh, high-income earners and young professionals and recent immigrants who want to get access to credit to make their larger purchases than they can make right now. This scorable population, I think, will uh, in the scoring system will really help here. So these this will matter, and the, the numbers are large. There, there are many millions of people here, so I expect it to pack some kind of uh, economic punch, and it's important. There's only a couple of channels that you have to really increase consumer spending, right? You can have higher wages, uh, lower taxes, but access to credit is another channel to increase consumer spending. So I hope it's going to be helpful here as we come out of the pandemic. And, and the last channel that I think is really important for economic growth is if some of these individuals are able to get access to credit, establish themselves, and potentially start a business maybe a year earlier. That will really improve economic productivity and then really have additional multipliers into the future. So I think it's great work that we're seeing here from uh, Vantage and you know, financial inclusion will bring economic benefits to us all. Let's hope. And that that's all great information. And I really appreciate having you both on the podcast today. Thank you, David and Emery. Again, that was David Fieldhouse, Director of Consumer Credit Analytics at Moody's Analytics. And Emery Schahungar, Senior Vice President of Predictive Analytics, Research and Product Management at Vantage Score. I'd like to extend an invitation to our listeners for our next Market Pulse webinar on Thursday, August 5th. We're focusing on the auto industry, and we'll welcome back guest economist Jonathan Smoke from Cox Automotive and Amy Cruzcuts from AC Cuts & Associates. You can register to join us at equifax.com slash marketpulse. And if you're looking for additional consumer credit and small business insights, please reach out to your Equifax representative or visit equifax.com business. 
Be sure to check our show notes for more details on creditforecast.com, a joint solution from Equifax and Moody's Analytics. And we'll also have links to access more of the research featured um, by Emory and VantageScore referenced today. There's certainly lots to dig into there. Um, And we hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date. Consider posting a review and let us know how we're doing. To suggest topics for a future podcast or for our webinar series, please email us at marketpulsepodcast at equifax.com. I'm your host, Catherine Doe, and that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening. Do you have the tools you need for adequate forecasting and risk management? Start with the differentiated consumer credit insight and credit trends by Equifax. Credit Trends is a powerful intelligence tool that delivers the holistic perspective you need to better understand your portfolio and trends in today's changing economic conditions. Learn more about Credit Trends through the link in our show notes. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are intended as general guidance only and are subject to change without notice. The views presented during the podcast are those of the presenter as of the date this podcast was recorded and do not necessarily reflect official positions of Equifax. Investor analysts should direct inquiries using the contact us box on the investor relations section at Equifax.com.